My name is Tim Stratton, and I'd like to welcome everyone in attendance today, not just those here in the building, but those watching us online. Welcome to Carney E. Free. It's uh, really good to be back here with my church family. Uh, as many of you know, I used to be a youth pastor here uh, from 2006 to 2015. I still attend here, but in the meantime, I've been pursuing a doctorate in theology. Finally attained that last year, and now I've been teaching as an adjunct professor at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. On top of that, I, as many of you know, I run an apologetics-based uh, website and ministry called freethinkingministries.com. So I encourage you to check that out. And I'd be remiss if I did not say make sure to go to YouTube and uh, search for Free Thinking Ministries there. Make sure to subscribe and ring that bell. That's what a good YouTuber is supposed to say. So uh, yeah, uh, please subscribe and, you, and you'll get videos from us every week. Well, Pastor Adrian asked me to speak on John 14 today. And he told me to try to keep it around 35 minutes, maybe 40. Uh, but after finishing my first draft, I timed it out and I realized I had around two hours of material. <clears throat> so, get comfortable. <laughs> Just kidding. I've drastically edited my original draft. But for those who are interested and want to go deeper, I have taken the liberty to publish my extended version of today's message on my website. So go to freethinkingministries.com if you want to read the full thing. Well, a lot of different uh, links you can click on to go deeper and things like that. You'll find it there. So I've got a question for you. It's probably a question that you've never heard before, so it's going to be a big surprise. But riddle me this. What is black and white and red all over? I'm sure you've never heard that before, like I said. <clears throat> I remember the first time my dad posed that question to me when I was a young child. Even as a little boy, untrained in philosophy, I knew something was amiss. Something was going on here. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I knew there was some kind of problem here I couldn't figure out. Because I intuitively understood that if something was literally black and white, then it could not be the color red all over. There's a contradiction here. Nothing can actually, actually be black and white and the color red all over. Then my dad explained to me that there's a play on words going on here, a word game, if you will. The red all over doesn't refer to a color, but it refers to the fact that somebody can take an entire black and white newspaper, for example, and read it from cover to cover. And if they read it all over, then it will be red all over. And I was like, ah, oh, I see what you did there, Dad. Good job. Kind of tricked me, but thanks for explaining it. Now, why can't a newspaper actually be black and white and the color red all over? It's because this statement violates the logical law of non-contradiction. How many of you know about the laws of logic? How many of you have ever studied the laws of logic? Anybody? Very few, very few. I mean, unless you're a philosophy major or a computer uh, major, you've probably not studied the laws of logic in school, which is sad, really. I think uh, we all need to do a better job of understanding these things. So, 
Fortunately, you've come to the right place. You're going to learn about the laws of logic in church, which is a good place to learn about it. So I actually discuss these three fundamental laws of logic in the first chapter of my book. It's actually uh, based on my doctoral dissertation, if you'd like to check it out. And in the first chapter of my book, I talk about the laws of logic and explain why they are always required in rational discussion and also why they're vital for interpreting Scripture correctly. Because if we don't assume these laws of logic, then you can read Scripture and come up with any conclusion. You could read Scripture and think, well, I guess atheism's true. No, we have to presuppose the laws of logic. So let's look at these three fundamental laws. The first one is called the law of identity. Or it, it is what it is. We hear that quite often. But the law of identity is really seeking to explain the fact that things that exist have specific characteristics that identify them. And thankfully, this is the case because, you know, if you've dropped off your, your children to go to the children's ministry today, you can find them when it's over and not take some other kids home. <laughs> this is based on the law of identity. Or when you go out to get your car after the service, you're not going to steal somebody else's car because things that exist have specific characteristics that define them and, and, and separate them from other things. So thankfully, we have the law of identity. The next is what I refer to as my favorite logical law. And this is uh, what's called the law of the excluded middle. And that's described this way. A well-defined statement is either true or false. There's no middle position. Uh, so, for example, a statement is either true or false is either true or false. There's no escape. Let's uh, do some others. Um, Tim Stratton is preaching today. That statement is true or false. Tim Stratton has long blonde hair. That statement is either true or false. So a well-defined statement is either true or false. And finally, we have the law of non-contradiction. When two claims contradict one another, at least one of them has got to be false. Maybe they're both false, but we know that at least one of them has got to be false. It can't be true. So let's talk about contradictions. As theologian Wayne Grudem puts it, he says contradictions aren't acceptable in the study of systematic theology. And he goes on and says, quote, there are many times we need to acknowledge mystery, paradox, and things we can't fully understand. But that's different from saying there's a logical contradiction. God never asks us to believe a contradiction, end quote. Indeed, God doesn't ask us to be unreasonable or illogical. He commands us to be reasonable. He wants you to be logical. In fact, Isaiah 1.18 is clear. God says, come, let us reason together. In my book, I wrote the following in the first chapter. I said, truth and logic are inextricably linked. You cannot have one without the other. Thus, if Christians claim that Christianity is true, then the affirmations of Christianity must be logical. Now, many people these days make certain kinds of claims. Uh, here's one that I hear quite often. All religions are true. 
You can have your truth and I can have my truth. And hey, at the end of the day, all religions are true. All worldviews are true. Well, is that the case? Based on the laws of logic that we've just surveyed, which, by the way, provide the foundation for mathematics and provide the foundation for science, right? The laws of logic are bedrock. If the laws of logic were not bedrock, then 2 plus 2 could equal 5 or 10,000 or 5 million, whatever number you'd like. But the laws of logic provide a foundation so we can know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, And nothing else. So when somebody says all religions are true, based on those same laws of logic, we can know that it's not true. That it's false when somebody says that. So let's consider some different statements made from different worldviews or religions. Let's start with uh, Islam versus Christianity. Muhammad versus Jesus. Jesus commands us to love our enemies. Muhammad says to kill him. Kill the infidel. These are the last words of Muhammad. Well, who's right? Jesus or Muhammad? Islam says that Jesus did not raise from the dead. Islam says, in fact, that Jesus was never killed in the first place. Christianity says otherwise. Both views cannot be true. Let's go to Hinduism versus Islam. All right. Hinduism says there are multiple gods, but Islam says that Allah is the one true God. Both views can be false, they are, but both views cannot be true. Consider Buddhism versus Judaism, the the Jewish religion. Buddhism, it's been said, is basically an atheistic religion. In fact, I was just on the college campus last week talking to a Buddhist, and I just wanted to make sure I got my facts right. And, and I said, is it fair to say that Buddhism is an atheistic religion? And he said, yes. Well, Judaism says otherwise. Judaism affirms monotheism. These religions contradict each other. They are mutually exclusive. They might, they, they might both be false, and they are, but they cannot both be true. All right, what about atheism? Atheism is not really recognized as a religion. I think it operates as one. Uh, but let's just call it a worldview. So uh, the worldview of atheism versus the worldview of theism. The atheist says that God does not exist. And the Christian or the theist says that God does exist. Well, based on the logical law of the excluded middle, God either exists or he doesn't. One of those views is false. In fact, one of those views must be true. God either exists or he doesn't. So since atheism says that God does not exist and Christians, Jews, and Muslims claim that God does exist, then one might not know for sure what worldview is true, but we can know one thing with certainty. One of those views is false and they cannot both be true simultaneously. These views are mutually exclusive. Let's consider what C.S. Lewis described as mere Christianity. Mere Christianity basically boils down to one statement comprised of six words. God raised Jesus from the dead. If that one statement is true, then some form of Christianity has got to be true. 
and he called that mere Christianity. We can, we can disagree with other denominations and points of theology, but some form of Christianity has got to be true if God raised Jesus from the dead. So there's been, I've heard that there's around 4,000 or so worldviews and religions to choose from that have been on the planet throughout history. So it's mere Christianity, God raised Jesus from the dead, versus every other view. If God raised Jesus from the dead, if that one statement is true, then some form of Christianity is true, which means all these other views are false, if they contradict that. So this leads us to what has been called the most hated Bible verse, the most hated passage in Scripture. So let's read this passage together, and I want to encourage you to see if you can find, see if you can pick out what seems to be this controversial verse, the most hated words in Scripture. John 14, 1 through 14. Follow along with me. Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. God, I pray that I will handle it correctly this morning. I pray that as I've worked on this message that, uh, that I've handled your word correctly. So Holy Spirit, I invite you here right now, and I invite you to speak through me. I pray that it's your words, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would transform our hearts and our minds. Ultimately, Lord, help us to fall in love with you, and God, use us to have an impact on this world for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father. No one gets to the Father but by me. That's what Jesus said. In 1998, the great theologian and philosopher known as Madonna declared the following on MTV. She said, (laughs) You're going to make me laugh, man. (laughs) Uh, Here's what Madonna said. All ways lead to God. Always lead to God. Now, Madonna, although I don't remember her saying anything specifically about Jesus at that time, was opposing Jesus. Well, based on the laws of logic that we just surveyed, we got to ask the question, who's right, Madonna or Jesus? Both of them can't be true. (laughs) Well, look, if Madonna is right, then Jesus is wrong. But if Jesus is right, then Madonna is wrong. Now, okay, to, to get things a little more serious here. Just less than two weeks ago, I think, a survey was just released showing that over 60%, over 60% of supposed born-again evangelical churchgoers ages 18 to 40 don't believe Jesus. They would side with Madonna. They don't believe Jesus when he says that Jesus, when Jesus says that he's the only way Over 60% of evangelical, born-again Christians, at least that's what they claim to be, reject that and say, nah, that's not true. The church is in trouble. Well, today, I'm going to give you reason to put your trust in the words of Jesus as opposed to Madonna and provide reasons as to why Jesus is the only way. Again, God says, come, let us reason together. So that's what we're going to do. In fact, all people should believe that Jesus is the only way, the only way to eternal life for three reasons. Don't worry, this is a good three-point sermon. So reason number one, God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the first reason. And God raising Jesus from the dead seemingly places a a divine stamp of approval, if you will, on everything that Jesus said, taught, and exemplified. And also upon those who Jesus chose to continue advancing his teachings. So this actually provides uh, reason to trust the entire Bible. If If we have historical reason to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, then this Bible should be trusted you know, contrary to what the over 60% of young evangelical Christians supposedly think. And why is this the case? Because Jesus placed his stamp of approval on the, entire, on the entire Old Testament. Jesus also placed his stamp of approval on those who authored or provided the info for the New Testament. And then God, raising Jesus from the dead, puts his divine stamp of approval on everything that Jesus said, taught, and exemplified. So, 
look, I don't have time to unpack all of this right now, but I did do so in that article that I told you I published on my website. And I provided four links to four, uh, four different videos where I do unpack all of this historical evidence. So I encourage you to go there, uh, the Free Thinking Ministries YouTube channel, or to my website, click on that link, and you can get them there too. Now, like I said, I don't have time to unpack all of that right now, but based on the historical method, and that's the same historical method that historians have used to learn uh, the truth about people like Julius Caesar, uh, Alexander the Great, um, and George Washington, and Abraham Lincoln. That same historical method has been used to know some true things about the historical person known as Jesus of Nazareth. The eminent historian, Michael Lacona, states that we have, quote, as much evidence of the resurrection, if not more, than we have of Julius Caesar's crossing the Rubicon in 49 BC. And no one doubts that, but he says we have more evidence for the resurrection, not just the life and death of Jesus, no, much more, of the resurrection, that Jesus was killed and then he was alive again. Just using the historical method, we can come to that conclusion. Now, Lacona notes that even the harshest skeptical and atheistic historians admit several things as historical fact about Jesus. For example, number one, Jesus existed. Two, Jesus died by crucifixion. Three, Jesus' disciples really believed that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them. Now, of course, the atheist historians are, are not going to say that Jesus really did uh, rise from the dead. They're going to reject that, but they will admit some things. They will say, look, these disciples who were scared to death and hiding and were cowards were then suddenly transformed into people who really did think that Jesus rose from the dead and they were willing to die for it. That should get our attention. Also, they'll admit the following. The church persecutor and Christian hunter, Saul, was radically transformed into the Jesus preaching Paul And he was willing to die for this message. Look, this guy, they'll say, was the guy that was hunting Christians down because of the message they were preaching. And he was torturing them and even sometimes having them killed. And then all of a sudden, something happened. Who knows? But Paul decides to join the persecuted. And says, "Uh, yeah, I now agree with them and I'm willing to die for it too. In fact, he was killed for, for that message. That should get our attention The skeptic James was suddenly changed into somebody who was willing to die for the gospel. And finally, the tomb of Jesus was found empty by his women followers. Now look, these are uh, facts that are accepted by the vast majority of historians, even non-Christian and atheist historians. The vast majority will affirm these facts. Now in Lacona's book, it's just a little book, um, I recommend, it's actually an easy read. It's a, it's a fun read. It's long, but it's a good read. It's called the, the Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach. Highly recommend it. In his book, uh, he demonstrates that the resurrection hypothesis, 
accounts for all of these facts together, while no other scientific or naturalistic hypothesis or explanation offered over the past 2,000 years can account for all of these facts together. So uh, it's called an abductive inference, the inference to the best explanation of the facts is the hypothesis, which makes sense of all of them together. And after 2,000 years, the resurrection hypothesis is the only one that can do that. It's the only one left on the table. So for a deep dive into that study, I recommend Lacona's book. And speaking of YouTube channels, uh, not only should you subscribe to mine, but I think you should subscribe to his also. He's got a YouTube channel called Risen Jesus. So check that out and subscribe to his stuff. He releases regular videos. Uh, as a historian showing why Christianity is true. Here's the point. If God raised Jesus from the dead, then Christianity's got to be true. And if God raised Jesus from the dead, then it seems that God has given his divine stamp of approval to the words and life of Jesus, and we have no reason to think that God's done the same kind of thing for Madonna. Thus, a rational and logical person should follow Jesus on this matter and believe what he says in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. So that's the first reason why we should believe that Jesus is the only way, because we have historical evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead. And by the way, that's a great reason to celebrate Easter here in a few months, so I look forward to doing that together. But this raises a question. All right, sure. Jesus said he's the, the only way, and the resurrection provides reason to believe him. But why is Jesus the only way? Well, that's a bit more of a philosophical question. So this leads us to reason number two. Jesus is God. To put it another way, Jesus is the only way to God because Jesus is God. Now, hold up. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, Tim, you, you just talked about all these laws of logic and the law of identity and law of non-contradiction and things like that. And, and doesn't saying that Jesus is God violate one of these logical laws? Isn't there some kind of a contradiction going on here? Well, a few months ago, I led a youth group, over 30 students and, and uh, volunteers, to Salt Lake City. And uh, we spent about a week there doing some uh, missionary work to the Mormon missionaries. <laughs> and uh, Brigham Young University, BYU, was kind enough to host our group and give us a guided tour of their beautiful campus. And they gave each one of us, all, over 30 of us, a really nice BYU baseball cap. And uh, then they, they provided a, a talk and then opened it up for a Q&A. And it was a fantastic time. Really, I've grown to develop some good friends on the BYU campus. And, and one of these uh, leading uh, Mormon scholars uh, spoke to us that day, uh, one of the leading Mormon leaders in Salt Lake. And one thing my Mormon friend said to our group, well, he appealed to logic, and then he said, well, look, your view of Christianity has to be false, he said, because it's illogical to say that we worship one person and three persons at the same time. And I respectfully interrupted him. And I said, well, look, that's not an accurate description of the Trinity. I said, you're, uh, you're kind of attacking a straw man there. Uh, I said, we worship one what and three who's. 
All right, let's get that straight. We worship one what and three who's. And when one distinguishes between the what and the who's, one can see that there is no logical contradiction in saying that Jesus is God. He is just not God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity known as the Son. So the concept of Jesus being God is logically coherent. It makes sense. But do we have biblical reason to think that Jesus actually is the creator of the universe? Well, let's consider what both John and Paul say about Jesus. And since we're already in the Gospel of John, let's just rewind to the beginning of that gospel. And let's see what is said in the first part of John 1. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I just mentioned Easter, but this is the message of Christmas. God dwelt with us, Emmanuel. Well, another thing to keep in mind when reading the first chapter of John is that the Greek word for word, so it says in the beginning was the word. Well, the Greek word for word is logos, L-O-G-O-S. And logos is used synonymously with Jesus in the text. So it's interesting to note what logos means in Greek. It's, it's defined as the principle of reason. The principle of reason. You see, the word logos is where we get the word logic. Logic and logos. It means they're the same thing. So uh, the Bible is clear that Jesus is God and seems to suggest that he is the grounding of logic and reason. You see, logic is grounded and seems to be grounded in the essence of God. And therefore, when we choose to think and behave logically, as we're commanded to do in Isaiah 118, when we're reasonable, we are godly. We are approximating to or being like God when you are committed to logic and reason. Now, here's the bottom line. If you were thinking that we should not place so much emphasis on logic, then, according to John, you might not be putting enough emphasis on the nature of Jesus. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. All right, so according to John, Jesus is the logic. He is the logic. The only way to make sense of reality is through Jesus. So if that's the case, then Christians should be the most logical people on the face of the planet. But sadly, based on that little survey I took at the beginning of my message, hardly anybody here is aware of the laws of logic. Very few people. We ought to be the most logical people on the face of the planet. We've dropped the ball. It's time to pick it up again. With that said... Christianity has a rich tradition of being reasonable and being logical. We have a rich tradition. 
great thinkers of the past have provided the foundation in which the church has thrived. So, yeah, like I said, we ought to get back to being committed to logic and reason. So with that said, what does Paul say about Jesus in the first chapter of Colossians? Uh, Chapter 1, let's start with verse 15. Paul says, talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Wow. I mean, according to Paul, if one can say that the creation of the universe flowed, as it were, through one person of the Trinity, it would be through the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself. The creator of the universe entered into the universe to save the people within the universe. How cool is that? So the second reason to believe that Jesus is the only way to God is because Jesus is God. With that in mind, let's talk about how Jesus saved the people within the universe. And this is our last point and why Jesus, or about, about why Jesus is the only way. So reason number three, the atonement of Jesus just makes sense. It just makes sense. So look, it's fair to say that sinful humanity has a broken relationship with a perfect and a maximally great God. You see, we are infected sinners and we offend the perfect God every day. So the question is raised, how is a broken relationship restored. Well, two things have got to occur if a damaged relationship is to be restored. Number one, the offended party must choose to bear the harm. And number two, the offending party must choose to confess and repent. Now, let's think about this. I think those of us who uh, are in successful marriages and been married for a while, we kind of understand this. I mean, I think about all the times that I offend my wife, and she's got to choose to bear the harm. And, and uh, I can confess, repent, send her flowers, and, you know, because I am uh, choosing to confess and repent and to change my ways, and she chooses to bear the harm, then our relationship is restored. I'm sure if you've been married for a while, you understand this. And sadly, for relationships that have come to an end, it's typically because... One person did not choose to bear the harm or choose to confess and repent. Look, one person might offend the other and realize how bad they were and send them all the flowers in the world and confess and repent, but if the offended party is not willing to bear the harm, then it doesn't matter how many flowers they send. The relationship's not going to be restored. And on the other side of the coin, 
if, one, if the offended party is willing to bear the harm, but the offending party keeps offending and is not willing to change their ways, then their relationship will not be restored. We have something very similar when it comes to our broken relationship with God. And again, that's why we're called the bride of Christ. In our relationship with God, he is the offended party, and we've sinned against him. And we are the offending party, and thus are powerless to restore this relationship on our own. It doesn't matter how many flowers we send God, how many good works we do, right? It doesn't matter how many good things we do. If God is not willing to bear the harm, then our works don't work. So God must choose to bear the harm. He doesn't have to. And God is life. The author and giver of life. He invented it and it comes from him. And John 14, 6 is clear. Jesus says that he is the life. So if God is life, then separation from life is death. And since sin separates us from God, like oil and water, then consequently, sin equals death. Therefore, in every aspect that you have life, you will die if you're separated from the source of life. As Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. So if our relationship with God is to be restored, then God must choose to bear the harm as the offended party. And if the harm is death, then God's got to die. One small problem. It's impossible for God to die. God can't die physically because he is the creator of everything physical. He is non-physical. The Bible says God is spirit, not a physical thing. He's the creator of all physical things. So God cannot die physically, and God cannot die spiritually because a spiritual death is a separation from God. But God is God based on the law of identity, that logical law. God is God, so therefore cannot be separated from God. That doesn't even make sense. So what are we going to do? we got a big problem here. If God's going to bear the harm, he's got to die because the wages of sin is death. But God cannot die as God. Therefore, if humans are to be saved, God has to become human. Has to become flesh, as John says. So he could bear the harm and experience death. So you see, we need Christmas. We need Good Friday. And we need Easter to have a restored relationship with our Creator. Happy holidays. Happy holy days. Why do we need Easter? Why do we need that resurrection? Well, you see, it took more than just executing Jesus because if death was punishment, if Christ is still dead, then he's still being punished. And as we noted in our first point, the historical resurrection is proof that God is satisfied with Jesus' atoning work. Therefore, Christianity is true and Jesus is the only way. It's the only way. So remember, we were created on purpose and for the objective purpose to love God with our entire being. That's why you exist. 
We see this demonstrated in multiple Bible verses, such as Luke 10, 27 and Matthew twenty two thirty seven. 37. You see, we are to love God with all of our mind and soul, with all of our body and strength, with every aspect of our existence. Love God first and love others as yourself. You see, the reason why you exist, the purpose, the objective purpose of your life is to love God with every aspect of your existence. In fact, that's the essence of salvation if you think about it. What is salvation? A true love relationship with God, with your creator. Paul tells us that love never fails. So if you truly love God, you're saved. There's nobody in hell who loves Jesus, and there's nobody in heaven who doesn't love Jesus. It's the essence. Love is the essence of salvation, and that's why God says it's the greatest command. And then he says the second is like it. Everybody love everybody. From your neighbor to those who would consider you to be an enemy, love them. It's all about love, and to do anything other than love is to miss the mark, the very definition of sin. Taken together, love God and love others comprises the way of Jesus. We're talking this morning about why we believe in the truth of Jesus. But he also says that he is the way to live and his way is love. Love God and love others. Everybody love everybody. The purpose of life is all about love. Don't miss the mark. You see, if we ever choose not to love God in any way that we have life, then our lives ought to be terminated because we are objectively broken. And this is an appropriate outcome, it seems, because if something breaks, we know that you either throw it away or you fix it. Now, as far as our broken relationship with God goes, we have the choice to either be thrown away, to throw ourselves away, hell, or to let God's love and grace fix us. Heaven. Because of the work of Jesus, the atonement, all people can be fixed and restored as we ought to be in an objective sense. You see, if, if, we, choose not, if we choose not to reject God's love and amazing grace, then his love and amazing grace will transform you. It will fix you. It will restore you. All you have to do is nothing. Don't resist God's love and grace. Just do nothing. Don't resist. God will change you. Let him change you. So in conclusion, you see, we have three very good reasons to believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, just as he claimed to be. Number one, God raised Jesus from the dead, and that puts a divine stamp of approval on everything that Jesus said and taught and exemplified. And he said and taught that he is the only way. That's one reason to believe him. Number two, Jesus is the only way to God because he is God. And number three, the atoning life, death, and resurrection just makes sense of how to restore a broken relationship. And no other religion or worldview offers anything similar. You see, because of, because of what Jesus has done, we can have a restored personal relationship with our creator. This is the essence of the message of the gospel. So let me leave you with two questions. Have you put your trust in Jesus? 
Do you love Jesus? The essence of salvation. Do you love God? Pray with me. Jesus, I want to thank you for the creation of this universe, for our existence. Thank you for creating us. God, you created us in your image on purpose and for the specific purpose to know you and to love you and to enjoy you for eternity and to love and enjoy others for eternity as well. God, you created us for love. And Jesus, I thank you for providing a way to be fixed, to be saved. I thank you for providing a way to restore a broken relationship with you. God, I thank you for your love. God, I pray that your love would transform each one of us and that we would overflow with that love and have an awesome impact on this world for your glory because, God, this world needs your love right now in a desperate way. This world needs to be transformed by your love and to see the objective purpose of our existence, to love you and love others. Oh, God, please use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.